Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio for Tuesday's chat on the Halftime app with Caitlin Cooper from Indy Cornrows. We talked about all things Indiana Pacers, including obviously Tuesday's report from The Athletic that the Pacers would be looking into trading some of their veteran players. So we talked about that and all the different moves that the Pacers have made over the last few years to get to the place where they are now and just what the team has been like this year as well. Uh, Good conversation. Be back Thursday, 5 to 6 p.m. once again. Enjoy. I'm sure anyone that's listening, uh, first of all, is familiar with Caitlin Cooper's work, uh, which you can read. Indie Cornrows, you got the podcast as well. Um, I have been talking all season about how confused I am by the Pacers and how I just don't know what to think about them or what they're doing, really, uh, on either end of the floor. And then, as we were talking about briefly before we started this, uh, not that surprising report comes out from Sham Sharania and uh, Bob Kravitz at The Athletic earlier today that says that the Pacers uh, are moving toward a substantial rebuild and are expected to open up trade conversations around some of their veteran stalwarts. And uh, I figured Caitlin was the best person to talk about this with, even though that had already been the plan. We're already going to talk about the team today. It just kind of gave us a whole new thing to talk about. So, Caitlin, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, And second of all, um, why were you not surprised about that report that came out earlier today? Yeah, I mean, kind of all season long, it seems like they take a few steps forward only to take like equal but opposite stops back. It's never really felt like they've been able to get traction with this group and necessarily with how some of the systems fitting on them. So, you know, their last game before last night, which some of it looked a little bit better against the Wizards, but they're playing Miami. Miami's down by Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler which this is a similar occurrence to what happened when they were in Denver, when Denver was about Jokic, Michael Porter Jr. And, and Jamal Murray. And, you know, they lose that game and they didn't just lose the game. There's times going on where, you know, it doesn't really seem like chemistry wise, they're necessarily on the same page. The effort kind of comes and goes at times. And also like there was frustrations boiling over by the end of the game. They started coming out with about five minutes to go and were playing with quite a bit more intensity on the defensive end but uh there was a few miscues where Sabonis and Karis LeVert really went at it and Karis kind of smoothed that over after the game and said hey you know we just saw things a little bit differently we talked it out we're fine but it's the most frustrated I've seen Sabonis be on the court in a game because that wasn't the only occurrence I mean he went at Keelan Martin for missing an assignment and on the one hand you can look at it and be like you know He's one of the leaders of this team, and at least he was showing emotion and showing that he was fed up, which was more than you can say in some of the losses they've had this year. But it did kind of give a sign of, you know, this is a team at a crossroads. They have lost four straight games. They've been not great in crunch time all year for reasons that I think are more telling than just having bad luck. I wrote a long article about that this week of stuff that goes on at the end of the games that makes you question, like, what exactly is your identity? What are you trying to be? And how they're handling, like, you know, whether it's blitzing Brogdon or extended ball pressure and whether they have the personnel to be handling it. So I'm not really surprised that they think that they need to rebuild or move some pieces, but I am somewhat surprised that ownership sounds like they're finally on board with it. 
the attendance hasn't been great this year. Obviously, they're down toward the bottom. And last night, even in a game that they won, it seemed like the building, like you could have heard a pin drop throughout most of it. There's been fan apathy. So maybe that leads to it. But there was reports over the summer with regard to ownership that Kevin Pritchard had kind of been thinking that they might need to do a rebuild over the summer. And there was pushback there. So I think that's kind of sums up where we're at at this current time. Yeah, the ownership thing obviously is like a big and sort of underrated piece. And when we walk through all the different decisions that got them to where they are now, I think ownership plays a big role in that too. Like Herb Simon is pretty old. Uh, I think he's in his mid to late 80s. Um, they've been like very reluctant, if not outright opposed to pay the luxury tax over the years. There are some other things like we'll get to when we talk about Brogdon, like they just won't play the restricted free agency game. So they kind of give away assets for, you know, reasons like that don't make much sense. But if he's actually on board with like, that was one of the the other things about the, the report that came in is like, they don't want to embark on a, you know, a long-term process because it's hurtful and the market won't stay engaged. But if you're giving away your veteran guys and on this team, it's not like there are young building blocks on this team that you could say, Oh, we're going to trade Sabonis and Turner and Levert and build the team around Chris Duarte. First of all, Chris Duarte is like the same age as Brogdon or whatever. Um, he's not, he's like 24, but, and it like Isaiah Jackson, uh, the, the other first round draft pick they had this year, I think he only played like five games or something before he got hurt. Um, so it's not like they have a a ready made young core to pivot to that. They can just say, all right, well, that era is over. We're going to move to these guys. Now it's going to take, I guess it depends what you get in a trade for some of those other guys. I know you're not a fake trade person, but, um, it's, it's not going to be as easy as just like we're going to retool, not rebuild. Like if they're really going to do this, I think it's going to be much more uh, of a of an undertaking than Herb Simon might be thinking right now. Yeah, and that's kind of the piece of it. Like obviously Shams and Bob Kravitz are both really good at their jobs. And I think that it was mentioned in there like they're not like what you said. It's not going to be like the case of the process or something going that deep. So you know, and the other parts of this are like, this is the same front office that did just draft Chris Duarte. And I like Chris, but like you're mentioning, he's, he's 24, like that. He's a ready-made product. And they also hired Rick Carlisle this summer. And around the times when those reports about rebuilding were, you know, kind of surfacing, they talked about, you know, maybe they hire a coach like Brian Shaw or somebody else to come in and oversee a rebuild after he had been coaching in the G League last year. So they went with Rick Carlisle and they're paying him, you know, $7 million a year. So my kind of inclination here is, is that it's probably going to be like, you know, I'm sure that they're going to be active talking to every team and seeing exactly how much they can get and return from all those guys. But I could sure see it be, we're going to evaluate which ones of them we can keep, get pieces back. And we're going to be continue to not be good this year and probably be worse than we already are this year and hope to go into next summer and, and try to be more competitive around whatever pieces we pick, which would, would lead me in a particular direction. But I don't know if their heads are at the same place. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, first of all. Like, I think Carlisle is just a good coach. So if he was really available to them, which obviously he was, then it makes sense to go get him whether you're rebuilding or not. But I can't imagine that he in probably like his mid-60s or something now has too much interest in rebuilding. I imagine he came there because he thought, you know, this was like a borderline playoff team the last couple of seasons. They've got 
guys who are really good players and maybe I can do a little bit better than what they've done here over the last couple of years. Like they clearly wanted to go in a different coaching direction after they moved on with Nate McMillan. And then last year, early in the season, those guys seemed to like love Nate Bjorkren. They were kind of sub quoting Nate McMillan um, uh, in their post game press conferences being like, I love this offense. It's putting us in position to succeed. And then obviously throughout the year, everything comes out about how they did. They soured on him. I guess you would say they just did not like, uh, the way the rest of the year went and you would think that coming into this season like if anything you're going to get with Carlisle is more stability like first of all it'd be hard to have less stability than last year and second of all with the exception of like never getting along with any of his point guards Carlisle has generally run like or like a team that has not had too much like rocking of the boat and that was despite working under Mark Cuban for years so it's, it does seem strange to me that they have been like you know arguing with each other and so disorganized on the court. Like I mentioned to you before we got started, I'm not sure what their goal was on any given possession on offense or defense. You mentioned that like they're throwing the ball all over the court, except for the place that it needs to go. Like it, it seems super strange that like a coach who I think very highly of, I think a lot of other people think very highly of and has generally been able to get, you know, the best out of his teams and sort of shape shift to the kind of roster he has seemingly has not been able to do that with this roster. What have you thought about the disconnect between Carlisle and the roster and why that's kind of happened? Right. I mean, it's a, just to go back to last year. I mean, it's been interesting with each coaching change. They go from Nate McMillan to Nate Bjorkren and, and under Nate McMillan, they have a top six defense. And when Nate Bjorkren's introduced, it's like, okay, what you need to do is come in and modernize the offense, make it less one and done. And everywhere he goes on his initial media tour, he's talking about how he's going to remake this defense and it's going to be aggressive and disruptive. And they're doing all this shape like Raptors style shapeshift. I mean, everything they did was Raptors last year. That's why I called them the Indiana Raptors. It was a copy and paste of their playbook. But it, it, and obviously the defense drops way off. It doesn't fit that roster at all. And it's like, you know, why was that the thing that you attacked? And now this year they start off and they're like, you know, we need to fix the defense. That's our mentality and we need to play with more togetherness. And it, in a lot of respects, togetherness to me when I watch the team has been, you know, we're going to de-emphasize and, and dilute some of what Sabonis does to involve other people. And that's kind of led them in very awkward and weird directions at times. Like last night when they played the Wizards, Sabonis said after the game, you know, we worked at practice on finding the pocket pass and doing other stuff, which is something I've harped on all year. They finally had over 10 possessions of the role, man. They posted him six times, which is more times than he had logged in the prior three games combined. And I think that that contributes a lot to their ability to play more random and do things with him. But some of the disconnect that's there, I mean, it's even interesting listening to Rick Carlisle in post-game sessions because they went on a three-game road trip where they lost games to the Knicks, the Pistons, and the Hornets. And in the Knicks and Pistons games, they scored 10 points in the fourth quarter against the Knicks and 10 points over the final 10 minutes against the Pistons. And he was asked kind of like a softball question about Karis LeVert having, you know, a better scoring night against the Pistons. And he was like, I don't want to talk about offense. This is about the defense. And then later on, Karis comes out and he's like, we can talk about defense all we want, but we failed to crack 90 points in two straight games. <laughs> and when you, when you went when you watch those two games back in the fourth quarter, like you could see, you know, Alec Burks was really extending the pressure against Brogdon. The Pistons were blitzing them and the Pacers guards are having a little bit of trouble handling that, which is a little bit weird for Karis when you watched him in the bubble versus now, which is all another top we can get to but um yeah it's just you can see from the sidelines how much play calling was going on in those two games and that they were constantly looking to the bench and it's like you're already having problems scoring in the half court 
against this pressure, and that's what was going on. So they, the starters end up getting benched in Charlotte. They come back against New Orleans, and Sabonis and others said, like, well, we came in and we met as a team, and we just, you know, they said they're going to take a step back and we're going to play with more freedom. I mean, that kind of happened for a few games. But I just wonder if in the aftermath of, you know, and it's a different type of micromanaging from what I've heard that's gone on with Nate Bjork and behind the scenes, but if that was necessarily the right, mix with this current group after everything they had been through last year but long point being is I I don't really know that I understand through their internal evaluation why it was made the decision that the problem with last year wasn't you know the frenetic defense and and everything that went wrong with that and more so was we need to you know like I said de-emphasize our best player to the degree that it's been it's weird yeah it's definitely weird like he was up at over eight post-ups per 100 possessions last year uh, with the second spectrum tracking. This year he's down at like five and a half, which he hasn't been at since like four years ago. And considering the degree to which their offense ran through him in the post and ran pretty damn well through him down there, both in terms of him creating for himself, whether it's with, you know, back to the basket post-ups, face-ups, up and unders, whatever. He's also like a pretty good passer out of the post. He doesn't see everything, but he's willing to, to make the right pass. He draws doubles all the time it confuses people because he's a lefty and he gets things that you might not be able to to get if you were a, a right-handed player just because like when you're not playing lefties night after night it throws you off when you happen to play one and that works in his advantage and like he's really good down there it's not like throwing it to to turner in the post is a lot better option he's just not that kind of player Lavert has like not been making shots all season so having him run most of the offense hasn't really been good brogdon like he's he's scoring well at least a little bit off of the drive, not may- maybe as much as he was like a couple of years ago when it looked like he might be their all star. Uh, but he's also had you know physical problems, which is another thing that like the entire team just has either ailments that are bothering them while they're on the court or ailments that keep them off the court like all the freaking time. It's crazy how many injuries they're dealing with on like a constant basis, and then through all of that to like you said de-emphasize the best player and specifically on offense when you're having trouble scoring, it's just, it's so weird. Right. Because I mean, even after, I mean, after that new Orleans game, when he was asked like, you know, the two things that changed, you guys played with more freedom, less play calling. And, and there was order restored kind of through running the offense through Sabonis. He was, when he got asked about it, he was kind of like, well, he was open tonight. And then last night after the game, he, he talked about how tremendous and massive Sabonis was in the paint. But even when he was asked, he was like, well, you know, some of that, goes along with you know how much he's being guarded in the paint and that it can be hard to get him I'm like I agree with that I've written about how much inverse gravity he's had they've played games against the Raptors where I've literally seen four people guarding him like he he just he shifts pieces that much and there's reason to because a lot of times the Pacers might have you know TJ McConnell and Torrey Craig out there playing off ball and then sure people are going to be you know bold enough to come over and and see the benefit in doubling the best player so I understand where Rick Carlisle is coming from but I also have a large compendium of possessions where he could be getting the ball on the roll and you could be making inside out passes for threes that are better quality threes where it's like that they would like and I don't want it to make it sound like Rick Carlisle doesn't value him because I think he does I mean he's he's playing a ton of minutes if you're at the end of game just like last night against the Wizards Miles Turner was on the bench Sabonis was playing and then Sabonis came out with like a minute to go, like kind of because the game was in hand. Miles made a couple of mistakes, and with 30 seconds left, Rick Carlisle put Sabonis back in the game. So I think he values him. He just only values him on his very specific terms. And I think that applies with some of the other players as well. Yeah, the Miles Turner thing is super weird. Um, 
Like, there were entire fourth quarters earlier in the season where he just didn't play at all. And then he had, like, that game against, I think it was the Knicks, where he had, like, nine threes and played, like, 38, 40 minutes or something. And he's had even more games where he's just, like, not playing in the fourth quarter. And it's like, you're talking about your defense, but Turner is not playing yeah. in the fourth quarters. And there there were a couple of games where Sabonis didn't play fourth quarters, too. Just uh, Some of that was just because the starters were so bad altogether that all of them sat. Sabonis has sort of picked it up production-wise lately, but the, the way they've handled Turner's minutes throughout the season has been extremely confusing to me. And that's yeah. like one of the big reasons why I don't really understand them. It's like that, the Sabonis de-emphasis on offense, and then like why Karis LeVert like can't make a shot from outside the arc at all, and also never gets into the paint anymore. Yeah, I mean, the Miles piece, I mean, when he did talk about, you know, I don't want to talk about offense, I want to talk about defense in Detroit, Miles was on the bench at the end of that game. So it's like, if the defense was the problem, exactly, why aren't you playing him? And it's been my opinion for a long time that either you find a way to play both of them at the end of games, whether the opponent's small or not, or it's time to move on, because you need to be able to have your best players on the court at the same time. But yeah, the Karras situation, I mean, we've talked about this on our podcast a lot that um, I felt like when you watched him play in the bubble, which I watched a lot of those games back because around the time that they were hiring Nate Bjorker and Jacques Vaughn was reported to be on their shortlist. They ran a lot of streamlined offense that really let Karras kind of play with more freedom in the open court and have the ball a lot. And by the end of last season, Nate Bjorker and, you know, Brogdon was out with a hamstring injury. So Karras was developed pretty good chemistry with Sabonis in the pick and roll. And now this year it's like, to put it kindly, he has blinders on. I don't really know what's happened to his passing game to a degree. If you look over at cleaning the glass, which I realize assists aren't a perfect measure of playmaking, especially if your team's struggling to make shots, but he was in like the 85th percentile of assist to usage rate. And now that's in the low fifties this year. And there's just a lot of times where it's like, you know, that's kind of the obvious pass and you are making it. And then in games, like they, they started tilting more of the handling to him, like against the box. Cause Brogdon was guarding Giannis and they just wanted to get Karras going. And in games like that, it's, it's not doing anything for anybody else. If, if Karras is running the offense because the ball wasn't moving. And that was a little bit better last in last night's game. He was he was making better passes, but that's been part of it. And as far as the shot making goes, I kind of want to be sensitive to him to his degree because when you see him on the bench, he always has like a back device on since returning from that back injury. And you can see yep. in spots where it's like he just can't get another deep. Like, or they'll have to pull him because he'll be trying to go get a rebound. And it's like, he can't even, he can't take two steps to go get a ball that's bounced. And I don't think it's completely effort. I think some of it is actual limitation. So because his game is so herky jerky naturally, when he goes into the paint to decelerate and then he needs to lift up, I think you can see that that's, that's impacted him to some degree, but yeah, his effective field goal percentage has been pretty abysmal. His assist rate's low. He's not getting into the free throw lineup, except for like these last couple games, he wasn't basically not getting to the line at all. So that makes it pretty hard. If that's somebody that you're going to be relying on to be running offense through. Yeah. I mean, I think also some of it is just like him and Brogdon are actually kind of similar players in terms of the way they would ideally be used in your offense. Like neither one of them is necessarily, you're going to put them at the top of the court and run 75 pick and rolls a game and just run your entire offense through them. Like you want to get them moving in dribble handoffs and you want to get them moving in like side pick and rolls off of secondary action and things like that. And they're both like kind of, you know, herky jerky guys too. They don't have necessarily the explosive straight line speed. So some of it is like you said, like if the ball, if, if Brogdon's involved in that action more often then Levert is off the ball and he's been a guy who's a better shooter off the dribble than off the catch when he was in Brooklyn. And if he's not on the ball, then he's not doing what he's doing best. And, you know, the the same is true 
for Brogdon. So some of it is just like kind of a they they're both they both kind of need to be co-lead ball handlers, but as co-lead ball handlers with each other, they don't have the other guy that they need in some se- in in certain senses. Like it's it's yeah. kind of a strange fit. And then you know the physical problems, like you mentioned, for both of them, Karras with the back and with every you know other injury that he's had throughout his career, Brogdon with his foot. I think he had something bothering him with his back at some point too, if I'm remembering correctly. Like it's just it's a lot. And when you don't have a ton of shooting out there around those guys either, you mentioned like you play Tory Craig, you play uh, McConnell, who's out for a while now, but like you play like Keelan Morton, you play, like all these guys, like Justin Holiday can shoot, but teams don't necessarily treat him as an elite shooter. He's not a shooter with a ton of gravity. They're not afraid of Justin Holiday's like 35, 36% shooting from three, and they're happy to take that instead of Sabonis at the rim or Brogdon on the drive or whatever else. Like it's, it's tough for these guys to, to get where they want to go. Yeah, and you bringing that up, like, I think that Doug McDermott, I said it at the time, I think that was an underrated loss that a lot of people weren't talking about. And, and you know, it was kind of going to come down, and it wasn't equal dollars, but kind of a choice between McConnell and McDermott. And then obviously McDermott got paid a lot more to go to San Antonio. But um, the degree of chemistry that he had with Sabonis and dribble handoff situations and cutting and being able to use Sabonis more at the elbows to really lubricate offense. And, and, and Doug actually does have shooting gravity when he comes off you know, motion strong or whatever, where he might actually draw like a meeting of three coming off of there that you, you can see that almost every game where, you know, and two, that's another spot of frustration that showed up in that heat game. People weren't cutting and then you go down the court and Sabonis would be like yelling at somebody like, why weren't you cutting to the basket and different stuff. And that was never a conversation he needed to have with Doug McDermott. So, um, yeah, I think that was a certain loss that contributes to where they are. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Um, before we walk through, like I said, I want to walk through like a series of moves that got them to this point. But before that, uh, Beamer asked the question in the chat, uh, do you think Goga finally gets consistent rotation minutes? Uh, I don't know where you fall on that. I feel like that's probably not the solution to me. Like if they move one of Turner or Sabonis, is that the question? Or is just is he going to get minutes now as they are? Um, doesn't say in the question. I'm assuming well, we the latter. It. Yeah, we can answer it from either angle. I mean, Goga was playing here recently off the bench in minutes with Sabonis and they when those two are out there they'll run a pretty aggressive hedging scheme and Sabonis like everybody kind of wants to harp on his defense and underrated this year while I'm not going to tell you that like you can like there's been times where they've had to manipulate matchups to get him off of Tobias Harris or other people that's happened for sure he's improved in subtle ways defensively that I don't think has really caught on nationally where like a year ago, you could not use him in a hedge scheme. He would get destroyed and get split or he would be letting people turn the corner. And they're doing that a lot with him this year. They did that down the stretch in the game that they won over the heat when miles was on the bench and he had a lot of contests at the rim, but he also stole the ball from Tyler hero jumping out above the level, but they did that with Goga. So if Goga's doing it, it wasn't going quite as well. Their low man rotations weren't great with the other people that they had. And then for some weird reason, the two of them were constantly getting paired with McConnell and Levert at the same time, which is a very awkward lineup in terms of spacing and who's going to be off ball. So Goga kind of fell back out of the rotation and hasn't been back. They've more been going with like one big and then playing, you know, here recently, O'Shea Brissett's kind of found favor again for reasons that I approve of because I'm surprised that he hasn't been as playing as much as he did given how he looked toward the back end of last season. If they move one of them, it's really going to depend on how they view Isaiah Jackson because heading into this season, 
after they drafted him, they kind of indicated that they thought that he might spend some time in the G League this year. And then the, the injury kind of precluded that, though he did spend a couple games there to get back up to, to speed. But they mentioned that they thought he could be a four, that they envisioned him as a four. Now, my question is, will they still envision him as a four if they could potentially play him at the five? Because the other night when he did come in and play minutes, they were they were using him at the five. So my guess is if they see him as a five, that he will he will leapfrog over Goga and they're going to be getting Isaiah Jackson minutes. But that's just my hunch. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I also think like we're at the point for the most part in the NBA now where if there's a question if a guy is a four or a five, it's not really a question. He's a five. Um, it's just kind of been trending that way in general. And I think with – you know, the emphasis on not just shooting, but skill on the floor. If you're playing a guy who should be a five at the four, you're just not going to be skilled enough to take advantage of the kind of things you mentioned. Like if they, you know, are blitzing Brogdon out high on the court and you have basically two centers out there, you're just way less likely to be able to get a quality shot out of that kind of situation. So if a guy, if there's a question, like just make them a five and do what you can to get more skill and more versatility on the court for the most part. Um, before we get to some more questions, um, uh, like I said, I want to go through basically everything that's happened. I, I think for me, you have to go back essentially to the twenty, the offseason before the 2014-15 season. They're coming off the back-to-back uh, conference finals appearances. Paul George is, I think, like 23, 24 years old, like ascendant superstar, just went toe-to-toe with LeBron back-to-back conference finals. And then he, you know, as, obviously, as everybody knows, like shatters his leg in what I believe was like the Team USA open scrimmage, um, n- not even for the Olympics, for like the world championships or whatever. And he's out basically the whole year. I think he played the last like six games of the season and they missed the playoffs. Um, and that's when they start making changes towards the end of, you know, that era, like that off season, they let David West leave in free agency. Granted, he was like 34, 35 years old and had been not as effective over the most recent two years, they trade Roy Hibbert in essentially a salary dump because, you know, they had to start taking him off the floor. Like the way that people think you can play Rudy Gobert off the floor, Roy Hibbert was actually being played off the floor. Um, and that same summer, they draft uh, Miles Turner or yeah, they draft Miles Turner. They trade for Lavoy Allen. They, they're like, Yamahimi is going to be our starting center next year. Um they come in, they lose in the first, they get back to the playoffs, but lose in the first round to the Raptors. So they're like, all right, we're going to make more changes. And then this is sort of really the end of that version of the team that went to the conference finals where they trade George Hill for Jeff Teague in a three team deal. They trade a first round pick for Thad Young and they sign Al Jefferson for some reason to lead the second unit. Um, and it's like they, they changed a lot basically, except for Paul George around him. And they basically went through all different combinations. And then, you know, they wind up getting swept uh, in the first round of the playoffs by the Cavs in a game, in a series that I think was decided by a total of 16 points, even though they lost 4-0. And then all of that leads to the Paul George trade, but that's like the first era. And to me, that's where things started going off the rails a little bit. And what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, when you look back at those last two seasons that Paul George had, a lot of people want to talk about Paul George in the playoffs or he had had success unless, you know, he's been in a, a with David West and Roy Hibbert and 
Lance and George Hill around him. And it's like, okay, go back and watch that series that he played against the Raptors. That was a Herculean effort oh my with the roster that they put out there. A year within like two or six players who were on that roster were no longer in the NBA anymore. Like they're trying to play lineups where you have Monte Ellis and Rodney Stuckey towards the back end of those last two years at times playing together. They added Lance back for like an energy jolt, which did work for a little bit. But then, you know, that series against Cleveland, like I just feel like I remember the whole time that it was just Kyrie and LeBron hunting Jeff Teague over and over again. Oh, my God. I wanted to legit punch them. Like I wanted to punch Frank Vogel in the face. It was it was very frustrating. And then um and then there was just nobody guarding Montalas. Like, it was a very sad ending there, too, as well. So, um, yeah, I think that there were some roster moves that Larry Bird made that didn't put people in the best positions towards the back end of his tenure. And, and you know, then they go into it, and, and Paul George requests the trade. And, and I think they did as well as they could. I mean, obviously, it was panned in a lot of ways, and it turned out, you know, people can look at who Victor Oladipo is now. But in the first year that he came to Indiana, he had a very magical season. Um his rim finishing that year was incredibly elite. And obviously he was a two-time all-star. Sabonis has been a two-time all-star. So um, there's been a lot of criticism over the last week for the Pacers current front office situation. And I think I see it a little bit differently. I feel like, you know, you can talk about mediocrity, but in a lot of ways, some of it's been a feat of engineering that they've been able to, with the amount of injuries and just unfortunate that the teams had, um, you know, whether they let some of this get a little too stale is probably a question, but I can see where they are coming from. And I think that if they have a strength that's been in their ability to make trades and not to panic and suss out where they're going to find value. I mean, after the bubble last year, they could have panicked and moved Victor Oladipo right away, but they let him come back no matter how awkward and how much drama there was around that situation to recoup some of his value. And again, like, yeah, it's a downgrade from Victor to Karis LeVert, in my opinion, from who Victor was when he was full strength before that knee injury happened. But I think you did about as good as you could getting Karis back. So um, and they haven't just sat around like that's been a wide opinion lately on, especially on Pacers Twitter, that they've just done nothing. I'm like, well, they traded Karis within the last year. There was wide reporting, which Kevin Pritchard even admitted to that. They went as hard after Gordon Hayward as they could with regards to potentially moving Miles Turner. And obviously there was a lot of reports this summer linking them to Ben Simmons. They can't make other people, you know, trade for them. And meanwhile, like you're saying, like, it's not just Paul George that's been hurt. It's Victor Oladipo having his, you know, knee come apart, basically. And then it's Sabonis not being in the bubble during plan- due to plantar fasciitis. It's TJ Warren now having not played a basketball for a full calendar year after what he had done in the bubble. So there's a part of me that, you know, in defense of them, like if, if you could have ever seen, you know, peak 17-18 Victor Oladipo playing with the current version of Brogdon and Sabonis and who TJ Warren looked like he could be when he finally, you know, extended his shot out to three in the bubble along with this version of miles actually hitting shots. I can, I can see where the vision was. It's just, it's never come into being. And in part, that's part of being a small market team. You take risks to get a lot of those guys who had injury histories because that's what you have to do to acquire talent. And unfortunately for them, it hasn't paid off. They've never been on the court together. Their intended starting lineup still hasn't played a minute of basketball. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think like you can make plenty of criticisms. I don't think one of them is they haven't tried to do anything like, Portland yeah. to me looks like a team that hasn't really tried to do much. They've just like shuffled the deck chairs around the same core group of guys for forever. This team has changed like several times over. You know, we just went through like the whole end of the like uh, I don't uh, I guess it's like the uh, the the boy band picture group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then like the PG trade, obviously that's um, 2017. Oh, you know what? So. Uh, Nate McMillan was already the coach for that Jeff Teague series. Yes, I yeah, think, for the if I believe, yeah. yeah. Um, so the 
the thing about the Paul, the Paul George trade is the exact same package had just been sent to Oklahoma City to get Serge Ibaka, and then those guys didn't play particularly well in their one year in Oklahoma City. And I was basically, and still am, sort of like the biggest Victor Oladipo backer there was. I was like, this guy is so much better than what people think he is. It's just like not been able to be shown yet. And obviously the package did wind up being essentially all you can ask for. You got essentially two all-stars for one all-star. Should they have gotten more at the time? Probably. But it's also not like that was the the only thing they did that year either. You know, they made that trade. They trade a first for, for Boyan Bogdanovich. They sign Darren Collison. They get Corey Joseph. All of a sudden their bench is deeper and better. And Oladipo is playing at a ridiculously high level. You mentioned like the finishing of the rim. He was like the best, like I, I call it like the runway ISO where like you get a switch and then you yep. sort of back out on the big guy and you attack him. Whether he was getting all the way downhill or pulling up for three, he was incredible doing that. Him and Sabonis and like dribble handoff stuff was was awesome. Um, and they wind up having the same record as the Thunder that year, granted, in a significantly easier conference. The East was still kind of a disaster at the time. And then they lose in the first round to Cleveland again in a series where it kind of looked like they, they might have had a chance to beat them. Um, Victor, I believe he played really bad in that game seven, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least like shot super badly from the field. And then obviously like he looks like he's going to be their replacement for Paul George. And then, like you said, like his knee basically falls apart the next year in the middle of the season. And he he had not looked quite as good. Like it seemed like he was sort of struggling physically already that season. And then he goes down and then I believe they got swept by Boston that year. And then they come up with, with even more changes like Boyan leaves in free agency. So they do, like I mentioned earlier, the sign and trade for Malcolm Brogdon, just sign the guy as a restricted free agent. Why do you need to give up a first round pick to do that? Like just it's bad asset management, but you know, they get uh, Jeremy Lamb, TJ McConnell, uh, TJ Warren in the salary dump, like a great move. And then Oladipo is hurt again. And then Sabonis is hurt again in the bubble. And it's just like, like you said, every time they, they try to get their team together, they can't get these guys on the court. And it's like not just one or two guys. It's like everybody at all different times over a series of years. Right, because, I mean, in the play-in tournament last year, by the end of the year, uh, they, Miles Turner was out with the equivalent of turf toe. TJ Warren was still out. And Karis LeVert was out in health and safety protocols as well. In the back end of last season, it was just a, a constant turnstile of guys who had just, you know, in part because they had to rely on Brogdon and Sabonis to the degree that they did in a very uh, high-octane, high-pressure system. I mean, you could kind of see those warning signs coming at the beginning of the year that, you know, is Brogdon going to be able to hold up carrying this degree of load? And to be honest, I've questioned that at the beginning of this season, too. When you looked at it as early season load, and that's part of the benefit of playing more of the offense through Sabonis, because I don't know that Brogdon for a full season, and obviously I'm not a doctor, but when you're looking at his touches and his drives and stuff, and it's comparable to what Luca was doing in Dallas in the time of possession, it's like, you know, I don't know with the amount of injuries he's had, if he can hold up carrying that degree of load. So by the end of last year, they were kind of, you know, hanging on at their last breath in addition to just, you know, having the entire Bjorken situation holding over their heads. And it's unfortunate because I, I get why they decided over the summer, because in part, I'm always like, you know, you never know what was out there. It's definitely more difficult when people are injured to be moving them in trades. Like, you know, maybe they would have thought over the summer and I don't know this, that, you know, TJ Warren might get us value, you're not moving him when he's been out for an entire year with a foot injury. 
like Miles was still hurt for a good portion of the summer to the point where like I don't know exactly what went on with the Team USA situation, but I mean he he started for Greg Popovich in the World Cup, and I don't know if he never even got an invite or if they just were like, well, he was hurt at the end of the year, so we're going to go in a different direction. So um, definitely situations in play there of what I think that they were going to be able to do, and I don't think it's necessarily completely egregious that they decided to come back and see what it might look like because they certainly didn't know that Karras was going to break his back before the season even started and then you know have them come out the way that they have it hasn't come together but you know I don't think people have necessarily lost their values from any of this um in some respects like I'm you know there's not a lot of teams that are probably going to need a center but like Miles Turner is better than he was last year um I don't know in how many like super meaningful ways, but he's at least hitting the three at a better clip than he did last year. Oh, there's like 37 teams that should be trying to trade for Miles Turner, in my opinion. But you know, you mentioned the mentioned the injuries at the end of last year, but it's it's not like it was just the end. You know, the whole season, like Oladipo before the trade was like not playing his full minutes and was sitting out games here and there. Then obviously they make the trade; they're expecting to get Harrison, and like granted, it potentially might have saved his life, but you know, they find a tumor in his, you know, routine physical that you're doing for the trade. And all of a sudden you don't have him for a while and you're already without TJ Warren for the most part. Like, you know, it's half your starting lineup. It's whatever it is, like a quarter of your rotation that basically you're spending, you know, 75% of the season with those guys in the sideline. Then Brogdon misses time, Turner misses time, Sabonis misses time at the end of the year. Like, it's just everything just keeps adding up and adding up and adding up. And then you throw in the coaching situation, on top of that, and it's just like it's not surprising that they came in and they didn't get out of the play-in tournament. And then obviously, even this year, they've been dealing with injuries pretty much all season. Like even McConnell is out now. Karras, like you said, basically broke his back before the season. Uh, Sabonis missed a couple of games earlier in the year. Brogdon has missed his usual handful of games. TJ Warren still has not played. Like I, I don't know what you're supposed to do when you can't get your guys on the court, but like I said, they've cycled through a ton of people. They've cycled through now three different coaches. They cycled through like a bunch of different versions of this team. And when you can't get out of like the place where you've been, and it sort of looks like you might be, you know, a decent bit worse this season than you have been over the last few years when you've kind of been like a fringe ish playoff team anyway, like it makes sense to pivot away from this group at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what seemed pretty evident. Like, you know, I went into that heat and you saw the amount of people that Miami was going to have out. And like, we can talk about the Pacers injuries, but like they've caught a number of breaks as well. And that's, that's a piece of this. Like I said, that game in Denver that they didn't have Jamal Murray, Jokic or, or Michael Porter Jr. In that game and the Pacers lost, they played the Sixers without Embiid. They've played, you know, the Bulls without Vucevic and Caruso. They, you know, and the list goes on and on. Like they've had a lot of games where people haven't been available on the other side, just like Bam and Jimmy over the weekend. So um, I was raising a red flag over, you know, whether this team was going to be able to be good enough in, in playoff situations just from stuff that you've seen at the end of games to think that, you know, maybe this has just gone on long enough. Yeah, and look, I think the thing that people have been talking about basically ad nauseum over the last... <coughs> Excuse me, sorry about that. My water went down the wrong pipe. Um, that people have been talking about over the last, you know, three, four years or whatever. And this is one of the the questions that somebody asked in the chat too is like, which do you keep Sabonis or Turner? And I know that is personally like your least favorite topic of conversation (laughs) about the Pacers that there is. And I think at this point, it's not necessarily a, which do you keep question? It's a, who can you get more for that makes sense for you question? Well, I think that's what the question has always been. And that's typically how I answer it, 
without being Kevin Pritchard and knowing what teams are offering, it's very hard for me to go on other podcasts and tell people, oh, yeah, you should trade him or him when they're completely polar opposite players in almost every single respect without me knowing who you're going to get back to know if that's going to fit. And at this point, it also depends on how deep of a rebuild ownership is willing to get to go through. Because, I mean, if you're willing to go all the way, then you're just you're moving whichever one of them is going to get you the absolute best assets in return. If you know, if not even both, if you're really willing to go deep, deep. But if you're trying to do it to the point where you think, you know, next year, we just want to be bad for this year. We accept that, you know, moving these people is going to make us significantly worse. We're going to get Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson more minutes. And then hopefully next summer we can fix some of this. You know, I think that because, you know, people are people aren't going to like it. But I think that because Sabonis has more years left on his deal and because I, I in my opinion, he is their best player that I would lean towards. I think Brogdon and TJ Warren and Sabonis are their three best players that you move the other two, see that you can get as much back as you possibly can and go into next year and see how that looks with the other pieces that you get. Because I just don't think that, that the Indiana Pacers are going to get somebody um, in return that's going to be able to get them like 16, 25, and 10. Like I watched him do up in Minnesota while also, like again, having some pretty decent defensive possessions down the stretch, though they did lose that game, going one-on-one head-to-head with Carl Anthony Towns. So um, that's probably where I would lean because you still have time left on Sabonis' contract. He's not going to be in a contract year next year that if it still isn't working, you could still move him and get stuff in return as well if you felt like you needed to go even deeper into this. But that's just my like knee-jerk reaction to this today. But again, I agree with you. I think it goes back to um, my opinion on that might even change if I knew exactly what they were going to get back. I think that's what it all circles back to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting question too because I think you could probably get more like raw return if you were to try to put Sabonis on the market. But I think that might not necessarily be the case during the season. Like you might not be able to get as much for him during the year as you would in, in the off season, because he's more of a guy that you're going to like, he's less of a guy that you could just plop into your lineup and say, all right, fit in. Like you can pluck miles Turner and put him on a whole bunch of different kinds of teams and figure out a way to make it work. He's not using a ton of possessions, but he can be a useful offensive player he's not a guy that you have to only run one specific style of defense but he can take away the rim for you and he can handle himself in space not like an elite center in space on defense but it's not like he's going to get you know roasted out there by you know nonsense point guards or anything like that you know like he can do things that pretty much any team will will ask him to do Sabonis I think is a little bit trickier of a fit in terms of the way you have to reorient yourself around him, even if he is, you know, a better player. So for me, like, if you're going to trade, if, you know, if you're going to go all in, like you said, to me, that's the only way you trade Sabonis this season, during the season, to me. I just think it's way easier to do in the offseason. So if you're just going to do one or two of those guys now, I think it's got to be, it can't be Brogdon. He can't be traded. He's not eligible to be traded before the deadline because of the extension that he signed shortly before the season. So it's got to be Turner and Levert and like maybe Warren if you can get somebody for him with his <clears throat> with his his injury issues. I don't know what the deal with that is really at this point, but like I, I don't know. I like for me, I would probably just go all in and be like, let's do the best that we can for all of these guys and get like as many shots at this as we can. I feel like if you're if you're going if you're taking a half measure, you're doing a, yourself a disservice. But I'm also not you know the owner of a basketball team 
in a market that's not super profitable in the first place. And I'm not 87 years old and also want to make money and still try to not be an embarrassing team before, you know, the, before I hit my nineties or whatever it is, you know, so it's, it's, I obviously have a different view on it than, than Herb Simon would, or even than like Kevin Pritchard would. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know this, but I, it seems like, you know, the front office might see it that way, just because, like I said, there's been two separate times where it's been reported that Kevin Pritchard thinks that they might need to go through a rebuild or at least has considered it. But I, I just think from their other summer moves, I won't be surprised if they take that other step first and really find out, because I do think that in some respects, Miles and Sabonis together have made more sense. I think it overall is always going to have a limited ceiling to it. They've both made improvements in ways that's made it you know a little bit more feasible than what I would have said in in the prior two seasons but um you know it's kind of like what you're saying with Sabonis that I guess that model would be a little bit more like what Orlando did last year where they kind of abruptly veered and and moved Vucevic at the at the middle of the season but you know will other teams see Sabonis the same way that I do I don't know I think I'm probably higher on him than than most people it seems like a lot of times I question my um, idea of basketball when I watch and see what some of the takes are on what his overall game is. But um, I can see that he might be an acquired taste around the league and, and what types of systems he's going to fit in. But um, we'll see. We'll see how they handle it. I think that what they've shown is that they're a pretty patient team and that they'll probably uh, – I don't think that they'll bring in a rush and it's just going to be next week that they're going to move one of them. But they could surprise if something really pops up. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that we're going to suddenly see like all three of these guys off the team, but by like December fifteenth, when the when players that were signed this offseason are eligible to be traded, all of a sudden all these guys are gone. I can't really see that happening. Like you have two months to canvas the market for whichever or all of them that you want to. Like, there's no reason that you need to necessarily rush into anything. Like, if there's something that comes about, do it. If if it makes you better or if it puts you in a better long-term position or both but you know barring that like the report came out today but that doesn't necessarily mean things are going to start happening you know today tomorrow next week right i mean uh, yeah at a minimum they're probably going to wait until all the players that you know can be traded can at least be considered in this process and you know you let that news get out today then maybe the you know your calls start coming in a little bit quicker (laughs) but i mean it has been i've seen stuff out of minnesota through the summer and a few times in the last week where a few reporters up there have said that the timberwolves are very much interested in miles turner so um that makes me think that maybe that they've been thinking about this you know behind the scenes quietly for a while yeah i mean look i'm one of the biggest miles turner backers out there i feel like there's like i said earlier 37 teams like i tried to come like i'm a nick fan which i think most people know I tried to come up with a way for the Knicks to get him earlier in the day today. I just don't think that there's really a deal that would make sense for Indiana unless they want to take on, like, Kemba. But (laughs) why would they do that? Um, Like, Kemba, Mitch Robinson, and a draft pick, I don't think is, like, the best you could do. Um, But I I think Minnesota would make sense. I think the Clippers would make sense. I like this. Dallas would make sense. There's a whole bunch of teams that would make sense for him. Like, if you get a guy that can shoot and protect the rim, that makes sense on a whole lot of teams. Like, I feel like there should be, you know, a pretty decent market for him at least. Um, well, I look the, at it this way. Like I, I've seen a lot of stuff the last day or two, you know, about the Pacers and the Blazers potentially, you know, like swapping deck chairs. And I think it's interesting because, you know, everybody always brings up because of the connection with Arvidas and Portland that, you know, oh, Sabonis could go there. And I'm like, Miles would be like, if I was Portland, Miles is the player I'd be making a call on. I mean, it, you need to correct your defense issues. He, he's the center that I would be making the phone call. 
And yeah. and to your point about you being a huge Miles Turner fan, he's definitely improved in specific ways this year and over the last year where, you know, I, I think that a team that would be acquiring him would be doing it at the center. I doubt another team would want to be doing the double big thing with him. But he's been better at finding his spots and being more aggressive on duck-ins, knowing where cuts need to be. He's shooting the ball better. I've even seen him do some sidestep threes with people actually guarding him, which is different than what happened last year. Like there was times, like you mentioned that Nick game this season where he went seven to 10 from three, like Tom Thibodeau is a little bit different because the last two years, the Knicks like basically been like, okay, bud, you, you can stand out there. We're not really going to react whether you make shots or not. And miles did like when he scored 40 against the wizards, the wizards were not guarding him. And finally, like he didn't self check out of shots. Like he confidently took those. If somebody rotates over to him on a switch, he'll shoot over the top, which is changes from, like that I haven't seen in the last two years. I mean, I wrote an article about, you know, actualizing him as a stretch five. I think it was before last season when Bjorken came on and everything that I mentioned in there that he needed to get better at, whether it was the self-checking, whether it was doing, making better reads on whether he needed to pop or roll to get his feet set back behind the line, um, different stuff like that. He, he has gotten better, like undeniably, if you've watched them play this year. Just the in terms of the aggression, like he can make shots and knowing – that and acting on it, like you said, the, the game against the Knicks, the game against the Wizards, just like being more of an active participant in the offense, specifically with regards to looking for his own offense, is yeah. so valuable for that type of player. And if you go to a team where, you know, he's like the main offensive threat as a big guy, maybe you can get even more out of that, you know, or like, or, or if they decide that they're going to trade Sabonis, maybe you can get even more. Like, I think that there's still untapped offensive upside there like I don't think he's ever going to be like the centerpiece of a team's offense or anything like that but if he's like the main screener for you as opposed to the guy that's you know sort of being the the outlet option maybe he gets more involved picking pops maybe he starts rolling to the basket a little bit more often like who knows you know I, I, I think that there's still more that can be done um we got about 10 minutes left here anybody uh in the chat that has any questions you want to send them in or if you want to send in a speaker request uh Pacers questions for for either me or Caitlin, if you got them. Mostly for Caitlin, she knows the team a lot better than I do. Um, <laughs> while we're waiting for that, let's talk about O'Shea Brissett because you mentioned him earlier, and I loved watching him at the end of last season. Why was he just not in the in the rotation basically for the first part of this year? I, I like it. It was really bothering me. Yeah, I think that in general, the rotation has been kind of interesting. I shouldn't even say interesting, kind of hard to follow at times because they're very much a coaching staff that prefers to adjust in games and feel things out rather than having a set rotation like you would have seen under Nate McMillan. Like you knew when Nate McMillan was the coach that the second lineup was going to come in and it was going to be TJ McConnell and Aaron Holiday and Justin and Doug and Sabonis unless one of those people was hurt. That Sabonis was going to play with the bench and anchor that group. And this year they've gone through a lot of different iterations. Like I said, the Goga Sabonis thing stuck for a little while and then that's been gone, which I kind of understand. But like then, you know, somebody might play and then they don't play for three games and then they do play. And in certain circumstances, you can look across positions and be like, okay, you know, they might play Jeremy Lamb here because he can kind of get his own shot. Versus, you know, they, they, you know, played a stretch against Utah where Keelan Martin was very useful to them because they had him actually guard. Rudy Gobert, and then they switched everything. So that was taking some of Utah's role gravity away. Like, you can follow some of the substitutions in that way, but at other times, it, like, I'm with you. I've questioned, like, why have I not seen O'Shea Brissett in three or four games? 
And I think, in part, the only reason he's kind of resurfaced at this point, which he is shooting the ball better than he was early on in some of the games, but it's because Justin's out in health and safety protocols. TJ McConnell's out, and, you know, TJ Warren is still out, so that's kind of opened some opportunities. I mean, it was interesting, even go this far, they played the Heat on Saturday, and Sabonis had, um, he wasn't in the starting lineup because they said he had to tend to a family issue, which turned out he had to get a rapid COVID test because somebody in his family had had a close contact. And they started Torrey Craig in his place, and he played the first four minutes of the game, and then he never played. Yeah, and then he didn't play. Uh, the uh, the Ronnie Brewer uh, shout out to Tibbs. Um, you mentioned Jeremy Lamb. I yeah, had completely yeah. forgot about him. He's like a total afterthought at this point. He's playing like twelve minutes a game. <clears throat> right, right. And there's some games and like, where like you know he's another one by the way where he's been hurt a ton over the last two years too, and he was like playing pretty well in that first season in Indiana, and then he was just like done, and then last year he missed a bunch of time too. Right. I mean, he was starting in place of Victor Oladipo, which is, is like a whole thing about looking back on their defense back then, because that was in part why I thought that they, this team could still be competitive again this year. Because I'm like, hey, before the Nate Bjorkren defense took over, they were starting Jeremy Lamb at the two in place of Victor Oladipo with the same group. And they were a toxic defense. While Jeremy, like, you know, even before he tore the ACL and the meniscus injury, like his defense has really fallen off quite a bit. I think that makes it harder for him to be more consistently on the floor. Like when he closes out, he comes out at really weird angles and gets kind of toasted on the perimeter, which leads them to look at guys like Keelan Martin and others to try to replace some of that, that they're not going to get from him. But yeah, I mean, his first season, he had some good minutes. It was kind of reported over the summer that they might need to play him because they, I think they wanted to offload his contract over the summer. I think there was effort made there and they couldn't really find a deal because he, he was out at the back end of last season as well. And um, I think that there was some, like, I don't want to use the word show pony cause that sounds pretty harsh, but like the idea that they were going to play him some to see if they could, you know, maybe get somebody that would be interested in him. But yeah, that's another guy that the, the rotation just hasn't been super consistent. O'Shea, O'Shea played last night against the wizards and was very good. They used him in one, four flat sets. He had running slips. He made threes. He kept possessions alive he showed a lot of hustle throughout and yeah, he was somebody that, you know, even when they were going through hard times and that's kind of the problem here is that you could rest your hat on like, well, Edmund Sumner and O'Shea are kind of popping right now. Like they're giving a lot of effort towards the back end of last season. And then, you know, O'Shea's kind of been buried here. So, oh, so. Man. Edmund Sumner, I know you're like the biggest Edmund Sumner backer that there is out there, but yes, kind of a bummer. I was a total off. bummer. Yeah, yeah, he had finally been healthy and kind of made some progress towards the back end last year with his defense and his shot had kind of started to turn around. He's already a really good cutter and he fit in that system. He's one of the people that fit in that system very well. So yeah, tough. I thought he would have made a ton of sense as like a Carlisle guy too, like defending multiple positions on the perimeter. You can play him with any of these guys. Like he, I think he would have had some fun with him. The one thing I found interesting, by the way, about this report today is it came out the day after they beat the Wizards last night where the Wizards have been like kind of where you might've expected the Pacers to be. Like they got off to a hot start, obviously, but they're 14 and 11. Now the Pacers are kind of where you maybe expected the Wizards to be They're 10 and 16. They can't win a game away from whatever they're calling bankers like Fieldhouse now. Um, <laughs> and like, and then they beat them last night. And then, then this stuff comes out today. Like the timing of the report I thought was out. Like if it had come out before yesterday, I guess I wouldn't have been as surprised. But, you know, what was they broke, what, like a five or six game losing streak or something like that. And then it comes out today. I thought it was just, just thought it was kind of weird. Yeah, it definitely was because they had lost, yeah, four straight. And they come and play the Wizards last night. And while I don't think that the Wizards were playing with like, they were on a back to back and the Pacers haven't had a lot of rest advantages this year. 
so far in the season. And so they did actually have a rest advantage last night playing at home. Obviously, they were probably pretty motivated to play better and do better than what the showing that resulted in booing against the Heat led to. And it felt like that they had, like I said, with the Sabonis thing, he had, you know, 30 points, six assists. They were using him like he, they finally had role man possessions where they were actually looking for that. They posted him at different times. They looked for miles inside more than they normally do. And, and Karras in particular, like Brogdon wasn't getting blitzed, which is like a piece of this, but Karras was a few times and he was actually hitting the guy on the slip. They switched up a couple of their sets, I noticed, where they were using more RAM screens to kind of slow down some of that potential trapping stuff. So it felt like they had figured, you know, at least a few things out and looked like a little bit better product last night um, in general. So, yeah, I would have it would have made more sense if that report had leaked initially after they lost to the Heat rather than today. But um, there's been a lot of clearly a lot of criticism and fan apathy in general around the Pacers over the last week or so where people have kind of been done with it. Like what, what direction are you actually going in? What are you trying to be? So um, they might've been feeling some of that pressure as well. Yeah. I mean, I also don't think like beating a surprisingly frisky wizards team should (laughs) throw you off whatever, you know, you thought of your team 24 hours earlier. Yeah. They weren't all that. It's like, that was the other piece of it. The wizards didn't play a very inspiring game of basketball last night. So Nice that the Pacers can get a win and get back on the win column. But, yeah, I don't think it would necessarily change my opinion of what the team is, even though I do think that they did some things better that they've needed to be doing of late. Yeah, it's not like they came out and, like, smoked the Bucks or something. You know, yeah. like, it's a nice win. It was nice to see them play better than they had been, especially over the – like, I think it was four in a row and five of six that they had lost and in not particularly inspiring fashion. But, yeah, like I said, like – it's been a team that I've been extremely confused by all year. It seems like they are confused by themselves in certain ways. And I know they're, they've been very frustrating to you this season. So it was good to have you on and talk about them because I needed to, to work through my thoughts about them. And for me, I've, I've told you this a bunch of times and you always like brush it off. Like you're the person that I want to talk to about this team. So Paul, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hopefully people got something out of hearing me talk about this for a very long time. (laughs) Hopefully. I hope so. Um, Thank you again for doing this. Underscore Cooper on Twitter. You can find her uh, at Indie Cornrows uh, as well. And uh, is it, what's the podcast that Indie, is it just the Indie Cornrows podcast or what? Yes. Yep. Yep. Just with with our site. Cool. Podcast there as well. Uh, Back Thursday, not a hundred percent sure who the guest will be just yet, but uh, Thursday, 5 to 6 p.m., same time. Uh, Enjoy.